tuning in to the online broadcast network, AfterBuzz TV. Over 20 million weekly downloads from over 200 countries and your number one source in after-show entertainment. AfterBuzz TV, the destination for TV superfans. Producing aftershows for over 300 of your favorite TV shows. Interviewing celebrities and showrunners. And bringing you behind-the-scenes exclusives. All thanks to E! Entertainment's Maria Menounos, producer Kevin Undergaro, and internet leader Akamai. Now, let the buzz begin! Hello, After Buzzers y mi gente latina. My name is Stephanie Georgie, and you are watching Spotlight On. Today, our special guest is Latin journalist who sometimes likes to go dancing, Julio Martinez. <laughs> How are you, Julio? Fine, thank you. Excellent. So I'd like to start from the very beginning, and as I mentioned earlier, you correct, you were born in Spanish Harlem? Yes, 118th and 2nd Avenue, 4th floor. Nice. Big, nice little midwife delivered me. Oh, I love it. You know, everyone that I know that's born or has any history in New York, they know exactly, like, exactly, exactly. <laughs> they remember the details. Um, and what are the backgrounds of your parents? Both my parents were born in Puerto Rico. My father is from Ponce. My mom was from a little farm outside San Juan. Nice. They met in New York City during the Depression. My father worked as an accountant during the day, but in the evening he was considered Manhattan's best Latin ballroom practitioner. He used to enter the Roseland contest. He won about three years in a row. And now when you win Roseland, you are declared the world's greatest dancer. Yes. That's how egotistical they thought. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, uh, one year my mom was dancing with another partner. They came in third. My dad liked what he saw. Uh, nine months later, I'm here. Right, and he just took it. <laughs> nine months later, I love it. Um, and what would you say your first influence, um, I mean, both of your parents were somewhat entertainers because they danced. Yes. Uh, what would you say your transition was into becoming you know, a journalist? Like, What was the first thing that you did to get into this world of the industry and media? Well, moving swiftly along, they my parents came to Los Angeles to do a movie during the war. My dad saw all this sunshine in January. Nice. He quit dancing, moved us all out here. He opened up a restaurant in downtown Los Angeles at 6th and Main. And we became middle class. <laughs> so I grew up. I developed an interest in music. I played the trumpet. I ended up going to college and getting a degree in music mm -hmm. from one of your rivals, University of Michigan. Right. And I began a career as a musician. For about 20 years, I toured. I switched from trumpet to guitar. I worked with singers, mostly as their arranger and accompanist. I worked with one singer, Al Jarreau, for seven years. Did shorter stints with Sarah Vaughan and Helen Reddy. And somewhere along the way, I figured that the only way I was going to could keep earning a good living was to always be on the road. Mm -hmm. And that got old. Right. I got tired. So I submitted an article to a publication called Dramalogue magazine, which got eaten up later on by Backstage, mm -hmm. and about the whole tribulations of being a touring musician. They hired me to be a cabaret columnist for them. I did that for a couple of years, and then Daily Variety hired me to be a theater critic. And I did that for about 18 years. And along the way, Variety, every once in a while, would give me a movie of the week to review. And so when my stint with Variety ended, I started writing about Latino, no, about Anglo television mm -hmm. for La Opinion, 
newspaper. Mm-hmm. Yep. And all La Opinion wanted me to write about was Latinos who made it to prime time Anglo television where the real money is. Mm-hmm. And then I started writing for Latin Heat Entertainment. And I have host a weekly radio show. I write for the Writers Guild magazine. In essence, I'm an entertainment journalist for hire. You right. know, for hire, absolutely. Um, for as far as your like educational background goes, you went to the University of Michigan. Did you study anywhere else? I did my first two years at Los Angeles City College. Mm-hmm. Got an AA degree, but I did it mainly to hopefully get a scholarship to upper division work. And I did. I got a scholarship to go to any music school that offered a degree in music education, and I chose the University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Little did I know I'd have to march in their marching band for two years. Oh, that's <laughs> too funny. And, and when I graduated, I decided the last thing in the world I wanted to do was to go into music education. Mm-hmm. So I got drafted instead, and the Army made me a music theory instructor at the Army Band School at Fort Ord and up in uh, Middle California. Mm-hmm. And so I spent a good part of the Vietnam War teaching musicians how to play a diatonic scale and the difference between F-sharp and G. Uh, And then they dumped me out in the streets of San Francisco during the 60s, and I... Oh, wow, that's prime time for San Francisco. Oh, Oh, man. (laughs) I segued into playing the guitar. I sort of went to grad school at UC Berkeley. I got arrested a lot. Uh, And finally, Berkeley had enough of me, let me go. And I started touring, and that's when I met this young singer, Al Jarreau. Mm-hmm. We formed a duo, and we worked together for the next seven years. That's awesome. And then everything just sort of segued kind of from that. Did it surprise you, your transition from music to writing? A little bit. Did uh, you, I'm assuming you didn't really expect to ever have, did you ever think that you'd become a writer? Was that ever an interest prior to? No, actually, it kind of happened by accident. Al Jarreau and I had a period of time when we were stationed, sort of, by this music booking company, mm-hmm. band booking company in Minneapolis, and our job was to go out to venues to be the opening act for whatever big-time uh, star was coming through. So in that manner, we opened for Bill Cosby, for Three Dog Night, for Steppenwolf, uh, the Paul Butterfield Band, Jefferson Airplane, and it was always the same thing. Mm-hmm. We would get five hundred dollars for the concert, and they would get around ten thousand. And finally, uh, Rolling Stone, which had gotten started in San Francisco around the time Al and I were first starting, uh, contacted Al to see how it was, and he said, "I'm tired of this crap. I want to be the one making ten thousand mm-hmm. dollars." So he, they said, "Write an article about it," and he wouldn't do it. So I wrote it. It was published in Rolling Stone, and I used that as a calling card later mm-hmm. uh, to get the job at Dramalog. I love it. I love the the persistence. <laughs> so, me, well, mostly too because I'm I'm Latina as well, and I, that's something that I've been focusing on. Also, the transitioning. Um, you had mentioned earlier, like the evolution for us and how Latinas go into English television and everything else. Uh, having been in the industry for so long and what you've seen, what was when was it the first time that you started seeing that Latinos were making? a place for themselves in the industry, and not just as Latinos, but as anyone else, any other regular person that's in the industry. Quite frankly, when I first started writing about Latinos, mm-hmm. uh, I was only writing about two people, Hector Elizondo mm-hmm. and Edward James Olmos. They were the only two Latinos really working. And then Jimmy Smith snuck into L.A. law mm-hmm. and got started there. But the real impact happened 
with Ugly Betty. Uh, oh, and also Betty Ugly Betty yeah. and then George Lopez, the, okay. both on ABC television. And yeah. that just sort of opened the gates. It made everything lawful, right. you know, accepted. Mm-hmm. And so there has been so much. Just recently, Fox introduced a show earlier this year that turned out to be a huge hit, Brooklyn Nine-Nine, about a police precinct in the Brooklyn Borough. And what was really interesting about this for me is there was not only one. There was two Latina series regulars mm-hmm. on it. And it just stated that from now on, they are recognizing the fact that there's a constituency, there's a out there, a viewing audience that wants this. Mm-hmm. And the one thing the networks are all in agreement on, they're not in the business of not giving the audience what they want. Right. Absolutely. Agreed. Uh, that, you know, and it surprises me that you say George Lopez and Ugly Betty because to me, those are somewhat recent shows, but it is true because I remember uh, George, I remember hearing that George Lopez was the first Latino to have his show uh, syndicated, like have it national. And that was a really big deal. And I guess everyone was very proud of it, also for Satino to have his like talk show um, for, you know, just on. T- television. There's an interesting story about how this almost did not happen, by the oh, way. Oh, please, enlighten us, of course. George Lopez was getting rather popular on the comedy circuit. Mm-hmm. And one night uh, in the audience was Sandra Bullock. And she took a real interest in him. And she liked his approach. She loved his stories about his grandmother growing up in East L.A., mm-hmm. about the fact that he had to work with his grandmother in a factory, all these things that later became ingredients into the writing of the George Lopez show. And the problem was that she had connections at ABC, but ABC did not want to hear about a Latino starring in a series because 20 years earlier, another Latino, Paul Rodriguez, mm-hmm. was pushed to be on a series, and they it was called A.K.A. Pablo. And it was the biggest bomb <laughs> ever. It lasted like maybe two episodes, and they have long memories at the networks. Right. They just thought it would be more of the same. They kept trying to tweak George Lopez uh, in terms of his approach. One of the big things that made him explode was they said, why don't we have, it's a normal middle-class home. Constance Marie plays his wife, so it's a full Latino home. Latino home, and but it really looks like anything uh, from any middle class track anywhere in Los Angeles. Which I was most proud of. Yes, but what the one of the writers on the show said, you know what we should really have on the counter in the kitchen, a tortilla maker. And <laughs> oh my god! <laughs> and <laughs> the little things that they focus on, the little little things, right? That's too funny. Oh, and man. and also they thought it should be an up by your bootstraps kind of story. Right. They wanted to be like a Latino version of the Beverly Hillbillies, right? Which was way back there. Yeah. I all of a sudden, unbeknownst to me, and nothing having to do with me, I struck it rich, mm-hmm. and now I'm living the great American life. Yeah. And he wanted it the story of exactly what it is: yeah. someone from the barrio, someone who had to work his way up. He he was on the line. Now he's a foreman, and mm-hmm. he's providing his family. Absolutely. The American dream life that everyone seeks. Which is so lovely. And there's great stories in that. It is. No, of course. Absolutely. I mean, I come from a family who's doing the same. Your parents as well, becoming dancers, even though they they sound so fabulous, if you will. <laughs> um, 
So do you ever want lessons in the rumba, mambo, cha-cha, tango? I do it all. Do you? Well, I'm really good salsa, so we might have to go yeah. to like La Descarga soon yeah. and, like, and do some dancing here in Los Angeles. Um, that's really exciting. How do you feel about, uh, for instance, right now uh, with Spanglish? Because now that the Latin community, and I know because I come from a family where my mother always says, escoge un idioma. Inglés o español? Like, don't do both. How do you feel about the Spanglish right now? Because that's very popular in Los Angeles, particularly. Well, it's popular, but it's also spreading out. Do you know there's a new series, network series, called Blackish? I do not know. What is this? Blackish is about a middle-class black family mm -hmm. that borders on the situation of having children who are essentially on the way, on the track to being totally white Yaleys. Oh, right. And, okay. and then grandparents, of course, who are rooted in, this, in the civil rights struggle mm -hmm. of African Americans here in the United States. And of course, the husband and wife are caught somewhere in the middle of this, what am I? Mm -hmm. Yes, I am black. Yes, I have this tradition. And yes, we have these goals and aspirations that are not directly tied in to our African American history. Mm -hmm. So, and they say, well, you're blackish, kind of, yeah. kind of there. And then there's Jane the Virgin on CBS, mm -hmm. which is about a Latina family and the coming of age of a, of a young woman who is caught in uh, me mentally, emotionally, in the traditions that have been taught to her in her family as against the explosion of sexual liberation and social liberation mm -hmm. in this particular day and age. That's interesting. You see, and it's funny that that's called blackish because I'm wondering if it would be offensive to some people or not, but I would have to say that I can identify it because I know at first look I, I probably seem more um, whitish, if you will, but it's one of those things where now cultures that are transitioning or becoming mixed and whatnot, it's almost more difficult to identify yourself with one or the other. It got to, was there ever a point where you felt like you weren't accepted in one? I mean, I'm sure maybe back oh, in the day but sure i we're puerto ricanos right from new york city did you know that when i came to los angeles there was no one named julio out here really mexicans did not name their children julio jaime jorge uh rodrigo but right. no julio so i was the first also i did not look and my family does not look the way mexicans look right. traditionally here exactly we're more fair skin i see that you have beautiful light eyes oh yeah uh, I we moved to Montebello, okay. uh, which is right next to East Los Angeles. Mm -hmm. They're almost interchangeable. And when I went to school, when I started school, um, the person who enrolled me said, okay, Julio Martinez. And I didn't know what she was talking about. Right. You didn't even <laughs> no. know to understand it. How funny. And, and she said, oh, are you Italian? My mother was standing right next to me. And this is the reaction she had. Now, I'm going into the fifth grade because I transferred from the L.A. Unified School District. She said, yes. Really? Yes. You see, that's that's surprising to me because 
um, in college myself, I remember going through, I took a La Raza class. And what it was was that there's a lot of Latinos who strived or parents who didn't even speak Spanish to their children. That was because, my parents. Okay, yes, who didn't speak Spanish to their children because they wanted them to focus on English. Right. Um, I have to say that um, my father, when he got here, his advantage was that he has blonde hair and blue eyes. However, when he got here, not knowing a word of English, refused to be friends with any Latinos as well and spoke to us in English. But my mother spoke to us in Spanish. Yeah. And then later, it became an issue for me that I didn't know it. So I, I mean, I speak it fluently now but I didn't learn it until I was 15 um, now that it's more accepted and not so taboo uh, as far as culturally do you think it's would you say it's important for all of us now to know both of our languages rather than one or the other yes okay today not so much when I first came to Los Angeles but today in this culture mm-hmm. it is amazingly advantageous to be bilingual if you can be trilingual do that right of course uh, because I did the same thing. I started taking Spanish one when I was in the ninth grade, yeah, you know, starting all over again. But I was Julio Martinez all through high school. When I went to my high school reunion, my 25th reunion, people were calling me Julio Martinez still. Oh my God. But when I went back to University of Michigan, which has a lot of East Coast people there, mm-hmm. they immediately said Julio Martinez. Right. Yes. Because so, it wasn't out of the norm. So it's it's been an interesting evolution for me. And then to have children of my own mm-hmm. who are half Latino and half Scottish. You know? <laughs> so my, my daughter is named Corey Craig Martinez. Wow. Two Celtic names. Yeah. And my son. That's was, my brother's name is Corey, by the way, so that's funny. And my daughter and my son was Cullen Kirkland Martinez. Two Scottish names. Mm-hmm. And... I asked my wife, why? Why do you want to do this? And she said, they're both gorgeous. We're in the entertainment industry. They're going to be in the entertainment industry, and no one will hire them to be Latinos because Mm. they don't look it. So when my son started acting, he got his uh, SAG card when he was 11 doing a commercial. It was Cullen Kirkland. When my daughter started acting, she was Corey Craig. Oh, wow. Well, there you go. And I'll tell you, it all bore out. Edward James almost did a movie about the riots in East L.A. and the walkout of Latino students Mm -hmm. from schools like Belmont, Roosevelt, high school. And he was casting, and he knew I had a son of the right age. He said, why don't you send your son over? So I sent Cullen over. Uh, Eddie took one look at him and said, Oh, no, I don't think so. Oh, man. Isn't that funny? I know. that. Um, well, as now, what is, with, with your writing and focusing on our, like, are you only focusing right now on Latino culture? Is that, like, your main focus? I know you were, you're part of Latin Heat Entertainment. Right. In terms of writing for Latin Heat, yes, mm-hmm. that is, uh, that is what I do. I've also done lectures at East L.A. Junior College and about Latinos breaking into the entertainment industry. Both my children went to the L.A. County High School for the Arts, Mm -hmm. and I lectured there for for both of them. They were four years apart on this whole thing of being a minority, having Mm -hmm. an ethnicity. Also, I had long. Uh, I had a dual meeting with Josefina Lopez. You know who she is? Yeah. Yeah. She wrote "Real Women Have Curves." Real, exactly. Well, she was part of the first graduating class at LAXA, the High School of Performing Arts, and she wanted to be an actress. And she was told her senior year by her drama teacher, "There's no way in the world anyone is going to hire you 
to be an actress in this town. And that's when she got angry and wrote the play, Real Women Have Curves. Which was magnificent. America Ferreira had her like big break there as well. No, and that's a really good movie because uh, being Latina, you know, we have our curves and everything. So it was, um, I do remember a part of my life when I started becoming very proud of being Latina. Because to be perfectly honest, I think there was a time period where I think I didn't even think about it. I didn't really focus and didn't care to be identified as that person. Um, So that's, uh, it's so crazy to hear that that was, that existed before, especially in Los Angeles, a city who is now the majority, would you say? Yes. Is Latino. Yes. Right. But it's a different type. I think the only issue, how do you, now I have a question about um, how you feel right now, because I feel that we do have a lot of minorities that are not so very good at either language. That is true. You know, so that's becoming a bit of an issue. Do you think that, well, I don't know, what, what, what are your opinions on that? On just well, like the community right now. <laughs> well, there is the situation you can learn. Mm-hmm. Uh, I interviewed uh, an actor who's on this very interesting series. His name is uh, Chris Gear. He's English. Mm-hmm. And the first four jobs he got coming to the United States, he had to speak in four different, for each one, four different American dialects from New York to Southern to Midwestern. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, part of the craft of doing this and getting paid for it is to do what the job calls for. So they don't care whether you speak naturally with an accent, lose it for the part, or don't get the part. And that really is the reality of it. Uh, Anna Ortiz is a Brooklyn-born, no, Bronx-born Puerto Rican. And when she came out, she was cast to be the older sister of Betty, an ugly Betty. Okay. And you couldn't have two more different accents. Right. No, I agreed. <laughs> yeah, that's funny. And and so uh, they had the father, played by Tony Plana, mm-hmm. uh, that he came from Mexico City. And when they got here, his da- older daughter's accent became more implanted. But Betty was more Educated, she right. she educated herself more, so she emulated more the accents she heard on television and in movies, and so that's how they got away with that. And they never had to state it. That was a backstory they were going to use, and they implanted in the minds of the actresses mm-hmm. of why they talked the way they talk. But in essence, no, it never came up as a subject matter. Right. In People just accepted it. They did. Anna oh. Ortiz was funny, ugly Betty. I mean, America was funny. Yeah. And so that is just the way it is. I was actually really um, excited to see what they were going to do because I grew up watching Betty La Fea, the original Colombian. Cause they oh, did sure. The telenovela for that. So when I, that was another proud moment that I think I had growing up knowing that they took a novela, Salma Hayek, you know, and then mm-hmm. they wanted to produce it to Ugly Betty. So that was really interesting. Um, now to transition a little bit more, uh, what is, what are your most like recent projects right now? What are you working on? I just did a project for the Writers Guild okay. magazine, and all the Writers Guild magazine wants you to write about are things that will let the membership of the Writers Guild get work or help them get work. And one of the real big stories, and I think one, it's going to be kind of a cornerstone of where the industry is going is the emergence of Amazon Studios. Amazon Studios is the movie-making division of Mm Amazon.com, and they're in Santa Monica, and they have launched full bore into hiring the best talent at the best money to write the series and star in the series and 
broadcast them over Amazon Chrome, meaning no more, no more broadcast TV. Mm-hmm. That you want to watch the shows, you have to be a member of Amazon.com. You have to be a subscriber to right. it, and then you can uh, see it on, over any media device that you have, including a smart TV, which sort of gives you the feeling of watching things on TV. Mm-hmm. But it's not a network, and what it has caused is the writers to completely change their minds about the way that television is written. There's one series called Transparent. Mm-hmm. It's about a very dysfunctional Los Angeles family. Uh, the father has made it as a producer, director. He was very successful. He's watching his adult ch- children flail in this town. Uh, and at some point, he's reached the age of 60, and he's come to an epiphany in his life. He wants to live the rest of his life as a woman. Not get a sex change, right. just dress and act and be a woman. Mm-hmm. And so uh, the person who created the series from Amazon, they picked it up for 10, ten episodes. Ten and this episodes. is transparent. This is transparent. Okay. They picked it up for 10 episodes. I'm trying to remember. Oh, Jill Soloway, who was a series who was on the writing staff of Six Feet Under. Okay. And so she... Great, yeah. The, when I t- interviewed her, uh, she said, this is amazing. Because we in the writing staff realize they want 10 episodes, half-hour episodes. That's five hours. And there's no commercials. There's no break. They're going to stream it in September right after, one after another. Mm-hmm. Five hours of television. So we said, we're not writing five half-hour Episode ten half hour episode for binge watchers like the whole net yeah right. we're we're writing a five hour movie so that's how they structured it they had a break um, a scene not a scene break but a subject break kind mm-hmm. of it goes in a different direction after the second episode it concludes after the eight episode and then episodes nine and ten are a denouement to the whole thing she said we have simply just written a five hour movie a completely different approach to what episodic TV is because she said when you end the episode you don't have to think and then next week you can say and then out the door is because it goes right from one situation to to another another. What what are your thoughts on the transition of of media? I mean, you started as a writer for an article, Rolling Stones, yeah, and then now we transition to our you know our websites and our little smaller columns and BuzzFeeds and everything else. Like, what what was the learning process for you having to kind of adapt to it? Uh, what I learned for me is when you're still working for an editor mm-hmm. who have their demands and their priorities, um, it used to be that you would get a deadline. Mm-hmm. Like when I re- would review theater for a variety, generally you review it over the weekend. The deadline to turn it in is 10 a.m. Monday morning. And now it's more like a guillotine in that turn it in in three hours. Mm-hmm. So uh, you turn it in in three hours, hoping you got everything right. Mm-hmm. In three hours and ten minutes, it's there. It's yeah, up. and that's it. Yeah. At the television press tour, uh, I'm a member of the Television Critics Association, and we meet every summer at a huge hotel in Los Angeles. This summer it was the Beverly Hilton Hotel. And we were all used to 
going to the press conference, doing the interviews, running to the press room on our typewriters mm-hmm. and uh, and whacking it out, sending it in, and then it would come out in a week. Now we have people who are sitting there while the conference is going on, their fingers just moving like crazy. And as the conference is going, it's, it's on the screen. Yeah, And uh, it's... Fortunately, with the Writers Guild magazine, it's print. Mm-hmm. They do have an online component, but they want me to write long-form print articles. Some of us still enjoy that and want that. Have you done anything like trans? Have you done any reviews on something like Transparent that you'd have to watch like five hours of, or do you kind of just watch the first two hours, write a little bit about that, and then the next three hours? Well, what they do is they generally give you the pilot. If you're lucky, they maybe they'll give you the first and second episode. Mm-hmm. There was one uh, series that, to me, <laughs> is a real precursor to the whole change in how television views social relationships. I mean, romance, mm-hmm. sex, falling in love. It's now, it's not a process of becoming emotionally entangled with someone. It's become a process of negotiation. Um, I'll give an example. This is the cover. I don't see it. For a new FX series, it's called "You're the Worst." As you can see, uh, you got a young man in a kind of headlock with a young lady, and that's actually quite a. That's a nice. That's a nice photo there. Yeah, and she is biting the hell out of his lip. Yeah, she sure is. (laughs) And because it's it's setting up the situation, people meet, Mm -hmm. and in this particular case, it's set up they meet at a wedding of a woman that jilted him. And they're both at the wedding. And she is best friends with the new wife's sister. Mm -hmm. So anyway, they have nothing better to do. So they go back to his apartment and have sex. And the sex is very graphic. It's shown, it even evolves into different stations of sexiness. Mm -hmm. And all the while, they're negotiating. She's too tired. She doesn't want to go home. And he says, no one stays home. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, but that's that's a commitment. That's, almost, yeah, that's a commitment I'm not ready for. Right, and so you have that, and all the while, all the physical action is going on too. And I'm beginning, and You're girls, girls, mm-hmm. kind of followed that uh, essence, and I see that happening a lot now. There's a whole dip change in the culture of what is a relationship and how it should be conducted and what it means to the parties, and where will it take them. Which is funny because I see that it, it says episodes three and four. The fourth episode is called What Normal People Do, which I could almost comfortably say that that's politically incorrect to say because what is normal now? There's no traditionalism, and like you said, it's it's showing the different types of relationships because now people have boundaries that they set instead of rules, meaning it all depends on what's between the two people. Well, the, the way that it works, and it's written very well, mm-hmm. the first two, three episodes are this negotiation. And that fourth episode is a move forward in the negotiation because they finally figured out that maybe it would be all right if they went to dinner together in a restaurant. Maybe. <laughs> I like how you said maybe. This, this, should we, should we not? Isn't that funny? Oh, my goodness. So, but the whole thing is that does the television audience want to see that? Have mm-hmm. we all moved that forward? Is the broad base of the television viewers, these people between uh, 20 and 35, 18 to 35, is that something they want to see? Is it viable for them? 
And it all comes down to how talented the writers and the performers and how unique the situations that they describe will be. Mm -hmm. But there's also an underline of, do I like these people? Do I want to spend an hour of my evening in their company? Mm -hmm. That's funny. Um, So is... Other than what else? Like, are you involved? Are you going to be? You'll you will be writing for this or writing about it? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, actually. Or how do they? How how do they a, approach it? How do they contact you? Like, what is? What oh, are, about doing things. Yeah. Well, if you're a member of the Television Critics Association, you have no choice between about February and July when the series starts. You are bombarded with hundreds of DVDs, press kits. Mm-hmm. Um, I even got a couple of bottles of very nice Maker's Mark. Nice. Along with <laughs> that's, a, that's a good one. Love it on some yeah, ice. <laughs> yes. Uh, and so it's all presented to you, okay. and you have to pick and choose. This intrigued me enough that I watch it where normally I wouldn't because it's nothing I could sell to the writer's guild okay. and nothing that I could sell to Latin Heat. There's there's not a Latino, a Latina uh, se- uh, series regular in it, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. So I just mainly uh, watch it because I just wanted to see where this is going. Now I'm thinking that if this is a success... Mm-hmm. Along with the success of Girls, what I am going to pitch to the writers' girl is doing a whole, a whole feature on creating this particular kind of romantic comedy, if you can call it romance. Right. But it, it's under the romantic comedy genre, mm-hmm. and so where that goes, what people would accept, what's the research that led someone to believe that this would be a great television mm-hmm. show, and. And so that is generally what I would do. And so I pick through all the stuff that's bombarded. Right. Exactly. As as an experience to see if uh, you can stay awake, mm-hmm. you should go to the three weeks of the television press tour in the summer. The sessions start at 9 in the morning. They bombard you with great food at noon. Then the sessions go on to 6. Then there's a huge party at night where all the stars of the network plus the writers are there in either some exotic restaurant with great food or at the hotel with great food. Now, three weeks of that, uh, it's it's not so charming anymore. Right. And you're really picking and choosing, can I sleep, just go back and sleep, and I'll come for this episode? Right. You're kind of picking what you really think is useful or valuable to you. Mm-hmm. That's crazy. Um, would you, have you ever been interested in acting yourself? Uh, well, kind of, in my hippy-dippy days of, in San Francisco. Mm-hmm. I tried pretty much everything. I was part of uh, a guerrilla theater company called the San Francisco Mime Troupe, which is based upon commedia, guerrilla tactics, and it's an- anti-government. And, of course, during this time, it was anti the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. So we did a lot of plays. We did a play called The Minstrel Show, which was a history of African-Americans in the United States, done as a minstrel show. There were mm-hmm. six of us, all in blackface and and funny tuxedos. And we did the play, and like I say, we used to get arrested a lot because mm-hmm. of the content of the play. We were even picketed by this very nice organization of young black men who one year later would call themselves the Black Panthers. <laughs> they didn't like what we were doing either. Right. So, yes, I did that, and it was improv-based, and I could sort of do that. They mainly hired me to be their music director, but they wanted mm-hmm. me on stage, partially because I'm a really good dancer. And 
I'm really excited. I, I, we're going to have to check this dancing out. Would you do, but would you do any acting now? No. no. I, th- I tell stories. You I tell stories. I, I love that whole process of creating a story. Some of them uh, from my youth. Some of them from before me. I tell stories about my mother and father mm-hmm. in uh, New York. I tell stories about being a father and raising children. I uh, tell stories about the... Is this on? Do you do this like on your radio show, or do you write it, or are you no? Publishing? I'm, I'm what you call an off-the-cuff storyteller. I I participate in Story Salon, okay, which is where one of the producers from this show first saw me, okay, and um, it's every Wednesday night at the Art Palace in uh, Studio City, and people get up and they're selected to tell stories. It's usually about twelve stories. They can't. They usually range from five to seven minutes. Mm -hmm. And I've been doing this now for about eight years. I've recorded a story of mine on the Story Salon, a big story CD. And also I've been published in the Story Salon Big Book of Stories. Um, And I've had my two of my stories published by Los Angeles Times Magazine and one by Westways, the Automobile Club Magazine. I wrote a story about my father's downtown L.A. when he became a restaurant owner in the 40s on 6th and Main Street. That with all the action. I work at a downtown restaurant, so <laughs> I, it would, I would love to hear the comparisons of what the culture was like and how it was. And He and his waitresses were right in the middle of the, of the Sailor Pachuco riots. Okay. Because uh, his restaurant was right there. Because it was right where the Trailways Bus Depot was and also the Greyhound. So you had all these servicemen during the war coming from all their bases concentrating at 6th and Main and then spreading out from there. And I, you told stories about being an 8 and 9-year-old being free to just wander downtown at will because we lived downtown. Right. Then. Mm-hmm. And so I did it as a kind of cathartic experience for me because I think about it a lot. And so I thought, I wonder if anyone else would consider this good storytelling. So right. I do that. Nice. I did that. Um, do you, Is there... Uh, just a couple more questions, sorry. And for... Do you think there's anything important that Latinos in the industry right now should be focusing on or uh, should be seeing? Like, what, is there anything you think that's still lacking or that we're not doing as a, a culture itself? I mean, well, is there something you'd like to see happen? There is, of course, the traditional situation. If you, you want to act and get paid for it in television and film, mm-hmm. the first thing you do is learn the things that will get you hired right. and paid. Then the next aspect about taking more control of your career, I think almost everyone should think of themselves in terms of being an independent production company mm-hmm. responsible for creating and producing work that maybe they can first of all only present online uh, then maybe get it moved on up if it becomes popular do all that social media stuff to push it out there meaning you're you're your own publicist now Mm -hmm. and you're your own publisher and get it out there if you feel that confident in doing that Mm -hmm. there's many people who say I want I have a talent I don't want to write anything I don't want to direct anything I want to be hired to utilize my talent because I believe I have a talent to move people you know, as a performer. Right. And uh, you think that's enough? Not, I mean, but it may not be enough. Yeah. It may not be enough because of all the competition out there and the traditional ways people are seen anymore. People used to uh, 
send their headshots out to uh, agents and managers, hoping they will come in and get an interview. You don't send anything out in the hard copy anymore. Mm -hmm. You generally use something like Actors Access through breakdown services. Mm -hmm. You submit online. You submit digitally. You want to audition for something, get your camera and microphone out there, do the audition, show what you can do, do your scenes, send it in digitally. Mm -hmm. And you do that because that does work. That can work, uh, depending upon the luck of the draw and how well you've executed it. But you're, you're so much left to your own devices. That's why someone can record an album in their kitchen mm-hmm. and eventually be at the top of Billboard because the access to watching what you created on Billboard through YouTube, uh, the communication of the essence of it through Twitter and other social media, the communication you can do through Facebook... It's all viable tools, and you have no choice. Those are the tools that are out there. It would be nice to go back to the old age of Hollywood where this little Latina uh, named Consuela was seen dancing at Alvera Street, was picked up. They changed her name to Rita Hayworth, and she became the big, one of the biggest stars of MGM. But uh, those days pretty much don't exist anymore. Do you, you think know, it's important for someone to, to make sure that they're staying to their Latino side? Um, whereas before you would be focusing on not being Latino and wanting to look more white or act more white? I don't think so, and I don't know what kind of choice you have. Uh, I was, uh, I'd say looking at you going off on an audition, Mm -hmm. there's no reason in the world why you wouldn't also go off to audition for the part of a Middle Eastern. Right, okay. Uh, A a Jewish girl living on a kibbutz. Mm -hmm. Um... Um, someone I could be a Jewish girl if I really wanted to, <laughs> you know? <laughs> uh, someone from any of the Muslim countries who mm-hmm. wants to be a terrorist, you have the look because there's, not, there's nothing that would disqualify you mm-hmm. from doing that. Uh, if you want to be, be uh, Mrs. George Bush as a young girl, probably not. Okay, you know? <laughs> yeah. Probably, yeah, definitely not. That's so funny. Um, and lastly, what is, as far as your Latino projects go right now, what is the most important thing that you're working on or that you want to be seen? In fact, something that you could tell our viewers about that you're, like, kind of working on. Well, as a project, I have written a radio play that was broadcast nationally last year called Shay and Allen. Congratulations on that. Oh, thank you. It's, it's, a, it's the fictional meeting of Che Guevara and the American beat poet Allen Ginsberg. Where, um, real quick, where can they find this? Well, I would now have to send it. Well, if, it might still be on. If you go to kpfk.org and archives, you uh, might be able to find it. It's still up. I, it was broadcast last November. Mm-hmm. And it uh, it has the proper number of bleeps because they both use profanity a lot. Mm-hmm. And now my project is that I'm adapting it for the stage. Oh, okay. Yeah, because it calls Excellent. for two characters mm-hmm. plus a narrator who on the radio broadcast was rather benign. But on stage, I have to make her a real character. Who are who are the characters? Is it two uh, men and a woman? Uh, well, Shea Guevara. Is Shea, oh yeah, Shea, of course. And Allen Ginsberg. Okay. And uh, it, since it's set in Limerick, Ireland, mm-hmm. because that's where they could have met this day in 1965, I'm making the female part Irish. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
who has her own agenda. She's part of the IRA, but she's working as a chambermaid. But she facilitates these two people getting together. So I'm so I'm converting the radio play into a stage play, and it's scheduled right now to be part of the Hollywood Fringe Festival next June. Oh, fantastic. So I'm in the adapting stage right now. Wonderful. The best of luck to that. And in the meantime, I have my radio show every Friday. Mm-hmm. And on Thursday, my column comes out. I write a, a weekly column about what's happening in live theater called Inside L.A. Stage. Mm-hmm. And then I turn out these articles as they come up for Latin Heat and for the Writers Guild. And, and I keep telling stories, and occasionally I go dancing. Okay, I know. We're going to have to go dancing. Um, your radio show on Fridays? Fridays, said, 2 p.m., 90.7 FM on KPFK. Okay. And com is where my features are. Mm-hmm. Um, and then artsinla.com is where my column is published. Excellent. Um, are you in social media at all? You mean do I Twitter? I have a Twitter account, but I haven't figured out how to use it to its best advantage. It took me two years to learn how to figure Twitter out. By, uh, you'll catch up. It's just and kind you, of random. you found my website, and I'm still trying to figure out how to utilize it for something. I think eventually I'm going to be publishing some works. Also, there's music Al and I recorded many years ago, just guitar and voice. They say that probably will be free to release because he was under a tight contract mm-hmm. for Warner Brothers. So our little independent project got shelved. But, uh, but hopefully that'll happen and that'll be interesting. Excellent. Well, uh, viewers, if you want to look at Julio Martinez's website, you can find it www.juliomartinez.net slash about uh, slash Julio. Um, and there are you, you do have a face or how, how do you connect? Face, do you I connect have, with any like of your? I have a Facebook page. I, 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 I creep. I have about 300 friends who I actually know everyone. Right. Mm-hmm. And I don't never. I never understand why I should answer a friend request from someone who seems to have no reason to want to be my friend. Right, of course. But um, and for Twitter followers, you do, but you do have a Twitter. You're just kind of learning. Yes, I I can't even remember what it is, but okay. I'll get it. Well, Julio Martinez for you. <laughs> and it, well, thank you so much for coming in. Um, I'm very proud to have had you here to talk about my our pleasure. Latino culture and everything else. And the best of luck. Uh, make sure to pay attention to see this adapted. What is the play? What is the play? Oh, called? Shay and Allen. Shay and Allen. We're going to see that soon. And viewers, you can find me on Twitter at Stephanie Georgie G I O R G I, as well as on Vine at Stephanie Georgie and on Instagram at Stephanie G forty seven. I'll be posting up a couple of pictures of us after um, oh, good. this little segment's over. And if you have any questions, feel free to go through me so I can go to him. All right. Thank you for watching, everyone. See ya. From executive producers Maria Manunos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other after shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.